We've been doing a series in the book of Genesis, as, as many of you know. And last week, um, Mark covered chapter 6 and 7. And at the end of chapter 7, we were left with a harrowing picture of God's judgment. In response to the great evil of the world, God sent a flood which wiped out all of humanity that left only Noah, his family, and some animals alive on a boat. And we saw two big themes, didn't we? We saw the judgment of God in response to sin, and we also saw God's amazing grace in saving the animals and saving Noah and his family too. Uh, And the end of chapter 7 is quite a mad picture if you just take a minute to think about it. The whole world is covered in water, and all that's left is this big boat in the middle of the ocean with loads of animals and Noah and his family. And what we're going to see as we enter chapter 8 and chapter 9 is that we see God starting again. These verses are what theologians call a recreation account. A recreation account. So the first couple of chapters, God created the world. And then in response to God's, uh, to man's sin, God decreated, if you like. And now he's starting again and he's recreating again. We see the waters receding. We see the land reappearing. We see Noah stepping off the boat as a second kind of Adam and representative of man. And then we have commands and we have blessings made by God that are similar that we see in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 as well. And so Moses, who wrote this book, is making a point. The ark, if you like, is the bridge between the old world and the new one that we are in today. Now, there's lots in these verses that we could go on to, um, but I'm just going to keep it very simple today. And as you know, I like three points. So it's going to be three points for you, nice and simple, hopefully, just to help you understand what's going on in the text. The first thing we'll look at is that God remembers. The second thing we're going to look at is that, God, uh, is that Noah worships, sorry. And the third thing we're going to look at is that God promises. So God remembers, Noah worships, God promises, okay? So the first thing is God remembers. Now, just get back into the scene again, Noah. Imagine you're Noah for a minute. You've been on this boat for 150 days. That's nearly six months at sea. There's water all around you. You've got a a nagging wife in your ear. You've got children who are fighting with each other and are screaming. And then you've got the stink and noise of animals all around you. A lion roaring, a dog barking, ants going in and out trying to steal food, a monkey screaming at the top of their voices, parrots shouting. And you're sitting there, in the boat, thinking, when's this going to end? When's this flood going to finish? Are we going to be on here forever? Is God going to fulfill his promise to us? Did he not say he'll bring us safely to the other end? What's going on? And then notice as we enter chapter 8, we read a very beautiful and important sentence. But God remembered Noah 
and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God remembered Noah and all the animals that were with him on that big boat. Now, what does it mean here that God remembered Noah? Had he forgotten him for the last six months and suddenly, oh, I remember Noah's there. I need to sort him out. Is that what's happening here? Well, that's not what it means here. God never forgets his people. In fact, he can't forget anything because he's all-knowing. The word in the Bible, when it says remembers, when it refers to God, means that he's acting on a previous commitment or promise. He's acting on a previous commitment or promise. God had promised in chapter 6 to save Noah and his family and the animals. And now he's going to keep that promise. The word actually shows us that God always keeps his promises, whatever they may be. We forget our promises, don't we? Uh, We break our words probably on a daily basis. We shortcut things when we overpromise and underdeliver. But God always keeps his words. And when he says he remembers something, it means he's ready to act. It's like when we, some, we promise something to the kids. I say to the kids, I promise next week I'm going to take you to McDonald's. I promise. Next week I'm going to take you to McDonald's. And they say, when? I say, well, sometime next week. Anyway, a week goes by and I ask them, do you know what day it is? No, Dad. Remember, I promised last week we were going to go to McDonald's. Well, today's the day we're going to go. I've remembered. In other words, it's time to act. I haven't forgotten the promise all week. I've known the promise there, but it's time to act now. And so I remind them, it's time to go. We're going to go to McDonald's today. And that's the same sense in the Bible. And we'll see this in the book of Genesis again. In Genesis 19:29. When God remembered Abraham and the covenant he made with him, he saved Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. When God remembered Rachel, he opened her womb and she conceived. That's in chapter 30, verse 22. In Exodus, when God heard the groaning of his people in slavery, slavery, he remembers the promise that he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and sends Moses to lead the people out of slavery. When God remembered Hannah and one Samuel, she conceived and had a baby. And so God remembers Noah, and verse 2 tells us that a great wind is sent to blow over the whole earth, and he stops the fountains that are below from erupting, and he closes the window of heaven, and the waters begin to subside. Now, you might be thinking, as I was during the week, well, where does all that water go? If the water has covered the earth, then where does it all go? Where does he blow it to, exactly? Well, God sent this powerful wind, and land masses are risen, so the ocean bases are formed, so that the water go in, and we have the seas that we have today. And we know that happened because Psalm 104 tells us, verses 6 to 9, it says this, You covered it with a deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took the flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so they may not cover the earth again. 
And what we have to understand is that the world post the flood is very different to the world pre-flood. There, there were greater land masses after the flood, deeper oceans, mountains were uplifted, strong winds and storms are possible now, and canyons, deep canyons that we have here today had been formed. The world had been drastically changed by the floods. And as I said, the ark, if you like, is that bridge between that old world and the new one. But the important thing here is that God has brought the ark safely through the flood to the other end. Do you notice that on verse 4? Moses tells us that the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. And that word rest is important because it's the same word that is used in Genesis 1 when it says that God rested from his work of creation. And it's a similar word in the Greek that is used when Jesus shouts, it is finished on the cross. God had finished creation and now he rested. God had finished the judgment on the flood and now the ark rested on this mountain. Jesus had finished his work of redemption on the cross and so he shouted, it is finished, before he rested in the tomb. In other words, what this is telling us is that the judgment was over, the flood had stopped, the Lord had brought Noah through the flood and once again he had rescued his people. And that's always the case, isn't it? God always keeps his promises to his people. Even in judgment, God remembers mercy. And throughout the history of the people of God, and even today, God always remembers his people. There are times when there is discipline. There's times, as we've seen in this book before, there is judgment there are times when many are wiped out. There are times when it looks like God's plans aren't going to come to fruition. And yet God always keeps what's called a remnant. A few faithful followers and the story continues on and on. I mean, it's interesting again in these verses, the parallels, the similarities between Adam and Noah. So if you look at Genesis 1, verse 2, the Spirit hovered over the waters. So now the waters are covering the earth. In Genesis 1, the Spirit hovered over the waters. And now a wind, which is the same word as the Spirit here, pushes the waters back and creates order again. Just as land sprung up in Genesis 1 as God's word, now land again reappears in this passage. Just as God blessed Adam and Eve and is told to be fruitful and multiply, so God tells Noah the same thing. Go out, be fruitful and multiply. Adam had three sons. One is cursed. One uh, is a son through which the promise comes. Noah also has three sons. One is cursed. And again, the promise comes through one's son. One son that Satan's head would be crushed. In other words, like I said at the beginning, this is a recreation account. It's a completely new beginning for Noah and his family and the animals and the world. God has started again with a remnant. God has started again with a faithful few. God has not forgotten his people. 
God never abandons his people. He always remembers his promises. I mean, imagine what a comfort this verse would have been to the people of Israel in slavery in Egypt. They're probably asking, where's God in this? Has he forgotten us? And they could recall what's said in chapter 8, verse 1. God remembered his promise to Noah, and he acted, and he saved him. Imagine what a comfort these verses would have been to the people of Israel in exile in Babylon, thinking, what's going on? Has God forgotten his promises? Has he abandoned us? Why are we so few? And they could look back at this verse and say, no, God remembered Noah, and he acted. God remembered his people in slavery, fulfilled his promises, and he acted. And what a comfort it is to us as believers this morning. No matter what we are going through today, no matter whether we are on top of the world or feeling alone, whether the circumstances are for us or the circumstances that we're going through are against us, whether things are new and exciting or just the same old, same old in our lives, we must recall this verse. God remembered Noah floating on that ark with all those animals around him and fulfilled his promise. And God will fulfill his promises to you and me today as well. And that gives hope, doesn't it? It gives hope to trust in him, to keep on going, and to be faithful to him. God remembered. Second, we see that Noah worships, and we see this in verses 20 to 22. So after the floods subside enough, And Noah tests the waters a little bit by sending out a couple of birds, first a raven, then a dove. And then God confirms to Noah it's safe to get off the ark onto dry land. And notice what Noah does first as he steps off the ark. Do you see that in verse 20? The first thing that Noah does as he steps off the ark is that he worships God. The very first thing he does He builds an altar to the Lord. He he takes some clean animals and he offers up a burnt sacrifice. And that burnt sacrifice signifies three things. One, Noah is thankful for all that God has done. Two, he's dedicating himself and his family to the Lord saying, all that I have is yours. I'm going to worship you with all that I have. And three, he was making an offering for his sin and his family as well. And notice the Lord's response in chapter 8, verse 21. He smelled the burnt offering and it was a pleasing aroma to him. And he said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Remember in chapter 7 how Mark pointed us to the fact that last week God's heart was full of agony. God's heart was full of regret. God's heart was full of anger and mourning at man's sin. And the sin of Matt came up to God like a rotten rat before him. But now look at the change. 
Now that pain and that indignation and that mourning and that regret is lifted by the atoning sacrifice. Noah's worship is pleasing in the sight of the Lord. His heart towards Noah and his people sacrifices one of pleasure. But just notice the pattern here from Noah. God judged sin, saved Noah and his family by his grace, and therefore God, uh, Noah worships God. Do you see that pattern? Judgment and sin, rescue and grace, and the response is thankfulness. Those who know they've been forgiven much, love much. Those who know they've been forgiven much, love much. Those who know that they've been saved from judgment are full of thanksgiving and gratitude to the God who has saved them. Those who have been utterly astounded by God's grace can say, your grace is amazing to me, give their all to the Lord. I mean, Noah and his family have just been saved from judgment, haven't they? He's been rescued from punishment. He too was unrighteous. He too was a sinner. He too could have been destroyed. But God had saved him and he's seen it with his very own eyes. And so Noah, as soon as he gets off the ark, gives his first to the Lord. He gives his best to the Lord. He thanks the Lord for all that he has done. I mean, no human being has seen or experienced redemption and restoration so clearly before their eyes like this man Noah. And he worships. His heart is full of gratitude. That's the same pattern for all of us as believers here this morning as well. When we see by the eyes of faith that the Son of God died for our sins, that he bore the punishment that we deserved, that he drank the bitter cup of God's wrath on our behalf, we too respond with thanksgiving, don't we? He's taken our sins away with the flood of his grace and mercy. And all that we can do is say, Lord, here I am. Let me be your servant. Use me as you will. A person who understands the grace of God loves much and is full of thanksgiving. But a person who is a selfish, bitter, self-righteous, thankless heart has not understood the gospel one bit. They've not understood that they've been forgiven much. They've not understood what a great saviour that they have and all that they have been rescued from. In Luke 7, a lady who is a woman of the city, i.e. a prostitute, the lowest of the low at the time, pitches up at a party where Jesus is. And in her hand is an expensive perfume which probably cost all of her wages. And her eyes are filled with tears. And she heads over to Jesus while all the Pharisees are sitting around looking at her in a self-righteous way. And she comes up to Jesus' dirty feet and wets 
his feet with her tears and anoints his feet with his expensive perfume and wipes away his dirt with her very hair and kissed his feet. And the religious leaders, leaders who are around her are raging. They said to Jesus, if you're a prophet, you wouldn't let this low-life scumbag touch your feet and do this to you. She's a great sinner. Jesus says to them, imagine two people own a loan shark money. One owns the shark 50 pounds and the other owes 5,000 pounds. And one day the loan shark says, I cancel your debts. Which one will love that man more? And the response is, the one with the larger debt. Jesus said, you're correct. Those who are forgiven much, love much. Those who are forgiven little, love little. Do you see? Do we understand? Noah has been saved from a terrible judgment. And so his first response is worship. His first response is dedication. His first response is thanksgiving to the God who had saved him. And yet we've seen an even greater redemption in the cross of Christ through the Lord Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, whose blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And so if we get it, it must be one of worship. Our response must be one of thanksgiving. Our response must be one of, here I am, Lord. I will dedicate all that I have to you and to your kingdom, whatever that may be. For you have rescued me, for you have restored me, for you have reconciled me to you through your son. Second thing we see is Noah worships. The third thing and final thing we see is that God promises. God's promise. Last thing we see is God's precious promise to Noah and to us. And the word that you see in the text is an important word, and it's the word covenant. Covenant. In fact, the word is mentioned seven times in chapter 9. Genesis 9:9, 9, 9, verse 11, 12. 13, 15, 16, and 17. And you know, as we say often in our sermons, that when something's repeated, it's important. Like when you repeat something to your kids over and over again, it's something that you want to drum into them that's important for them to remember and understand. Well, here is something the author is trying to get across to us, that God is making here an everlasting covenant. In other words, he's making an everlasting promise to Noah his family, the animals, and every generation since. The Lord says over and over that he promises never to wipe out the human race again via a universal flood. Notice a few things. First, who gives the covenant? It's God. Covenant doesn't come from Noah. It comes from God. He's the one who signs, seals, and delivers it. Second thing we see is the covenant is based entirely on God's grace towards Noah and towards us. He doesn't say to Noah, you've been a good little boy. Here's a covenant for you. It's not based on his righteousness or ours. It's an everlasting covenant. He makes this promise to the whole human race. And in that way, it's an unconditional covenant. Three, the basis of the promise 
is that he will never, ever flood the whole universe again. The flood, remember, was a sign of God's righteous judgment against sin. But now he's going to hold back that righteous judgment until the end, when Jesus returns. And finally, notice what the sign of the covenant is. The bow in the sky. And the word that is used there is a hunting bow. The sign showing that God has put his weapon of war to the side and is committing to peace to his people and to the earth and even to the animal kingdom. And I love where the Lord places the rainbow, don't you? He places the rainbow on the boundary between heaven and earth as a continual reminder built into the very fabric of creation that God will never wipe out humanity again with the worldwide flood. In fact, if you jump to Revelation chapter 4, John sees a rainbow that surrounds the throne of God. The rainbow is a permanent sign here on earth and in heaven to remind us, but actually the text also says to remind God of his commitment to his people. And that must have been a great comfort to Noah and his family during the years that he had on earth. I mean, imagine Noah and his family after going through all that they've been through, looking up the sky and seeing the rainbow. It must have bred hope, must have bred confidence. It must have assured them God's not going to do this again. And it also reminded them, do you know what? God has rescued us. God fulfilled his promise. God took us through the seas of judgment to the other side. God protected us. God provided for us. God's promise was kept from beginning to the very end. Or again, imagine the people of Israel in exile, in Babylon and elsewhere, wondering what's going on. Does God care for us? Has he forgotten us? And then seeing that rainbow in the sky and thinking, no, God hasn't. God is faithful. God keeps his covenant. God is doing his thing. He has not abandoned us. No one can snatch us from his hand. That's the same for us today as well. The rainbow, let me tell you again, is not the sign for LGBTQ+. The rainbow is not the sign of the NHS. It came from the Bible. It's up in the sky to remind us that God takes sin seriously. But he always saves his people. He's always with them. He never abandons them. The rainbow speaks of God's perfect faithfulness in all seasons, in all of life. And ultimately, that thing in the sky is pointing to the Lord Jesus. Here's the thing, Noah was a righteous man, a faithful man, who was saved by God, but he wasn't a perfect man. He wasn't the answer to sin's final problem. The final answer to the problem of sin and the taking away of God's judgment is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And instead of God pointing the judgment bow towards humanity, he now points it to his very Son who takes our sin and bears his wrath that we may be made right with God. 
The rainbows on the boundary of heaven to remind us God is faithful. He keeps his promises and he shows us that in Jesus. Therefore, as believers, whenever you see the rainbow in the sky, you can be reminded, do not fear. Do not fear today. Do not fear the future. Do not fear death. For the Son of God has paid for our sin and he is with us still. And he will keep us safe in his arms till we meet him face to face. And one day he will gather us to be with him forever. And if you're not a Christian this morning, every time you see the rainbow in the sky, would you be reminded that God does take sin seriously, but that you can be saved by trusting and believing in Jesus Christ who loved you so much that he would die on the cross for your sins. May you turn to him and find the same hope that we have in that precious son. Amen.